Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Janessa Jeltima, Assistant Professor of Zoological Medicine at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine and Head Veterinarian at the Sacramento Zoo. Hi, Dr. Jeltima. Thank you so much for being on Aquadox today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here talking with you. It's going to be great. Before we get into some of the cases and the residency program, can you just give our listeners a brief overview of how you got to where you are today? Sure, I'd love to. So my uh, journey to zoological medicine started in undergrad. Uh, I actually studied business and philosophy. So nothing related to zoological medicine, nothing related to veterinary science whatsoever. And it wasn't until actually I was just about to graduate that I really turned a corner and decided to take another path with my career. So once I graduated, I found that I didn't have any of the prerequisites I needed to, <laughs> to actually get into veterinary school. So I had to actually go back and take a lot of those prerequisite science courses that I didn't get with my other degrees. So it was kind of a weird situation where I was having to take like one class at a time because it was like chemistry 101 before you take chemistry 102 kind of thing. During that time period, I decided that I would just spend all of my time gaining experience and just learning the ins and outs of everything I could before I decided to apply to veterinary school. So I worked at a day practice. I started as a poop scooper. I was making 475, uh, the big bucks right after graduating college. <laughs> at least you made money in this field, you know, 475, that's like real money. <laughs> yeah. So they, they started me out on a training wage. So I was able to uh, gain experience. And in my spare time, I also started volunteering at a wildlife health center. And then a position ended up opening up at our local zoo for a veterinary technician slash assistant a volunteer position. And so I ended up like rearranging my whole schedule just so that I could like volunteer for this experience. So for the next three years, I took one class at a time and then spent so much of my time, you know, either working at a dog and cat clinic or gaining experience in wildlife rehab or at the zoo. So after the three years, I finally got all the necessary prerequisites. And I went ahead and applied to veterinary school and I got into all but one that I applied to. And so I ended up deciding to go to North Carolina State University. So I chose them because of their zoological medicine program there. And I was in state. So tuition was, you know, more affordable, etc. Finished out my four years in veterinary school and applied for an internship and ended up in a private practice, small animal rotating internship for a year. And then I applied for residency programs and uh, ended up getting a position as a resident in zoological medicine at North Carolina State University again. When I was done with my residency, I was invited out to UC Davis to help with a temporary position while they're looking for sort of a full-time faculty member to help with the zoological medicine department. And so I think two days after I finished my residency, I trekked the United States and ended up in California and got to work over here at UC Davis and then helping at the Sacramento Zoo. And I applied for their permanent position and ended up getting appointed as an assistant professor. And so that's where I am right now and still am. 
Cool. All right. And now that you're the veterinarian at the Sacramento Zoo, I know you've had some really cool cases come up lately. And so one of them is about a snow leopard. So can we start with that? And can you tell our listeners what happened with this case? Sure, I would love to. So this is the story of Coconut. Coconut was high maintenance from before he was even born. And it took a lot of work from a lot of dedicated people to get him to a a place where we were all comfortable with his condition. So Coconut is a uh, a little male snow leopard um, that was born a couple of years ago at our zoo. Snow leopards live solitary lives generally. And so anytime that you considering breeding snow leopards, there's a degree of risk. And so usually introductions can be somewhat uh, intense and you have to time them very carefully around the reproductive cycle in order to make sure that you have a smooth introduction that's successful for producing a, a little cub. So when you were introducing them, approximately how long did it take from you know, first letting them see each other to smelling each other to actually getting to be in the enclosure together? Yeah, that's a great question. Usually we're looking for signs that mom is cycling. So there's usually a pattern of behaviors that you're going to start seeing for a few days before you start your introduction. And the key here is to try to time it so that the introduction occurs at like her peak receptivity. So you're looking for cues of her vocalizing and rolling on the ground. And then of course the male also shows behaviors around that time in response to certain scent cues. Then it's, you know, you don't want to wait too long because you don't want to like get past the point of uh, a peak receptivity. And so the keepers are usually the best ones to, to make that judgment because number one, they're aware of their behaviors and they can they can really read the animals very well so we'd kind of be on standby waiting for the ideal time for introductions to occur so again we're reading their behaviors we're strategizing about how to have the enclosure set up to to make that whole thing a success so you don't want one of the animals to kind of get chased or fearful and get stuck in a corner because that could make things kind of go all awry so we are able to get them to introduce um, over the course of like a couple of days Um, and we ended up performing a examination to check for pregnancy a few months later and we did radiographs and ultrasound And what we found was really interesting. One of the cubs was fully mineralized and the other cub was only partially mineralized. And when you say mineralized, what exactly does that mean? So about two thirds of the way through gestation, cartilage in the uh, fetal skeleton starts to mineralize and become sort of bone instead of cartilage. And so we actually noticed uh, pretty early on that there was um, some difference between the two fetuses, which is not necessarily normal. (laughs) And so we were kind of concerned that we might be dealing with some medical issues with, with the cubs. You know, we kind of monitored mom and she gave birth to two cubs. And we noticed right away that one of the cubs had a bent tail. And a lot of times uh, when you see one deformity, it oftentimes is an indication that there might be more than one deformity in a 
a neonate. So we were even more concerned that maybe we had some genetic defects affecting at least one of the cubs. And so we made some attempts. You have to be very careful when you're kind of deciding to intervene. A lot of times, if you start disrupting things, you can end up causing enough stress that mom might reject the cubs. So it wasn't until like the second or third day that we um, were able to go in and look at the cubs and assess them. And unfortunately, the one cub we had concerns about, the cub didn't survive, but it had a very large cleft palate. What that means is that there was sort of a separation in the roof of its mouth that made suckling very challenging and potentially life-threatening. When they go to suckle, sometimes they'll drink milk into their lungs. So unfortunately, that cub's defect was so severe, even if we had been able to get our hands on it right away, I don't think we would have been able to surgically correct the defect. But coconut was the other cub. And coconut, interestingly enough, also had birth defects. When we did his initial exam at that sort of three-day mark when when mom finally let us in there, we were able to detect that he was missing both of his eyelids, his upper eyelids. And that can cause a lot of complications. If you don't have eyelids, it's very difficult for you to protect your cornea. You can end up with hairs that grow in in the wrong direction and cause irritation to the eye surface. And it can escalate and cause, you know, corneal infections to the point where an animal can go blind if you don't intervene. And so right away, we started making plans for him. We worked with our keeper staff. We started talking to them about as he is starting to wean and, you know, come off of mom's milk, then we need to have a plan for starting training him right away uh, to be receptive to eye drops interventions, injections, and just being handled on a regular basis so that we can check his eyes. So we were focused on his eyes, but there was another problem that was brewing. We noticed that he didn't seem to be able to pick his body up like normal. He couldn't use his back legs to help him start standing in an appropriate way. He basically would just try to make walking movements and instead his legs would be sort of stuck out behind him and would just sort of kind of swish against the floor, but not necessarily be underneath him, allowing him to sort of hold his weight up. We don't fully understand what causes swimmer syndrome, but we did know that that's what we were dealing with and that we needed to intervene. So again... We had our orthopedic medicine specialist involved with his care, got radiographs, um, did a full assessment of his, you know, musculoskeletal system and developed a plan to provide him with physical therapy. Keepers had little slings to help him learn how to use his back legs in an appropriate way. We had a variety of different splints to keep his legs closer together and underneath him and to strengthen those muscles. We had little tunnels where we had like boards where we could kind of make him walk between the two boards so that it held his limbs in an appropriate conformation 
to allow him to walk more normally. He was doing physical therapy a few times per day. All of those efforts led to him starting to be able to bear his own weight and lift his little body up. And we were able to, to get him to the point where he was functional as far as a kitten goes. <laughs> But we still had his eyelid issue to deal with. His eyelid problem was so severe. When his fur started growing out, we realized that the fur was contacting the surface of his eyes and was leading to some corneal irritation. And so we worked with our uh, ophthalmology team to figure out a plan for correcting that permanently. So we had been working with him pretty much since day one to train him for getting ready for procedures, taking medications, taking eye medications after, you know, surgery. So we, we had planned this pretty much from birth that we were going to do some intervention to help him out. We ended up doing cryotherapy on his eyelids. So this is where you basically take a very cold substance. In this case, it was nitrogen and treat the eyelid with that cold substance to prevent regrowth of any of the hair follicles on the edge of that eyelid. So essentially just kind of like making the eyelid bald permanently. He recovered incredibly well from the procedure. He allowed us to put lubricants in his eyes and antibiotic uh, drops after his surgical procedure. And it was really interesting. The keepers, the first comment they said was his eyes are wide open compared to what he previously had. They were like, you know, it's amazing because we feel like he was probably squinting a lot because he was actually painful prior to the procedure because of all those hairs poking in his eyes. And then when we removed those, we think that it made him much more comfortable. He ended up doing incredibly well. We are able to fully resolve his eyelid issue. His corneas went back to normal health. We eventually were able to take him off of all eye medications and he kind of flourished as a, you know, snow leopard. Wow. What a great end to the story. I don't even know how to follow up a happy story like that, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the UC Davis Zoological Residency Program. So let's dive into that for a few moments. Do you think you could give our listeners who might be interested in the program just a little overview of the program and what makes this residency program unique compared to some of the other programs out there? Yeah. So the UC Davis and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance residency program, it's a partnership program between uh, several partner institutions. And we work together to really create a clinically oriented training program for veterinarians that want to become proficient and experts in the field of zoological medicine. So the structure of the program, it's a three-year program, and it is accredited by ACZM, so the American College of Zoological Medicine. So it is a program that meets the requirements for that college for you to sit for board exams following residency uh, to become a board certified specialist in the field. With that being said, it is a three-year program. The first year of the program is spent in Northern California, where half of the year 
is at the Sacramento Zoo, which is a kind of small to medium-sized zoo that it's got a really nice but small collection. (laughs) Including coconut. Well, he has since gone to another institution, unfortunately. We made him all better, so now he can go somewhere else for the rest of his life. So, (laughs) That's funny. So it's a small zoo. It is a small zoo, but it has an incredibly dedicated staff and it has this long-term partnership with UC Davis that really facilitates doing high quality care in conjunction with the specialists at UC Davis. So six months of the year spent at Sacramento, and then the other six months are spent at the university doing rotations that are tailor-made for each resident. So depending on what a resident's background is, what their career interests are, and where they feel more or less confident, we tailor-make that first year of the residency program to help bridge any gaps or enhance their skills in a certain area to really set them up for success for the second and third years of our program. Once they successfully complete that first year, they uh, then transition to Southern California, where they begin work at SeaWorld for a couple of months. And then they spend the rest of that second year at San Diego Zoo. So once they complete the second year of the program, they then go to uh, San Diego Zoo Safari Park for their last year. So that's a separate facility. There is uh, a lot of hoofstock there where they can learn a lot about neonatal care or just more population-based medicine. But uh, there's more than just hoofstock there. There's tons of different animals and an incredibly diverse collection at that facility as well. And a whole separate team of incredible mentors that can help guide and refine the skills and experiences of the resident during their third year. So after the third year, they complete the program officially and are usually qualified to fit for boards. So one of the goals of our program is to prepare our residents for the process of becoming board certified. And so we do aim to have them meet all of the uh, credentialing requirements, which include publications and research projects, as well as helping them develop a good study routine and plan to hopefully set them up for success once they're ready to take the examination. That's a great overview. I'm sure some of our listeners who are interested in the program are wondering how to make themselves stand out on an application and if you had any advice for them as they're trying to apply for the program. Yeah. So zoological medicine is an incredibly competitive field. So the first thing that I would want to get across to anybody who's listening and interested in applying is that the process of getting into the field is not always straightforward. It's not always a straight line either. And it can be filled with all kinds of trials and tribulations. And that's just a part of the journey. When you're walking that path, realize that it is competitive and you want to set yourself up for success, but also realize that if you don't get in your first try or you're feeling sort of behind the curve, don't be super hard on yourself and realize that there are more than one way to get to where you want to go and you have to find your own path along that way. 
With that being said, for our residency program, we do have all of our mentors involved with the selection process for our applicants. So what that means is that you have about 20 different people evaluating your application materials. And, you know, when you get 20 very qualified and experienced mentors in a room, it's hard to get them to agree or look at things exactly the same way. And so what I would say is that there is no one way that a mentor looks at an application. With that being said, there are several areas or categories that I think it's important to sort of pay attention to while you're putting your package together to really help highlight these areas for mentors. So those categories, this is not an order of importance. The first one is academics and knowledge. So, you know, having a good knowledge base and demonstrating that some of that could be with your grades. Some of it could be with your performance in a clinical setting. The second category is experience. And by experience, I mean experience in zoological medicine specifically and in veterinary medicine in general. So we want to know that you've got a good repertoire of being a clinician and being able to sort of make those clinical decisions, how to manage a case. So have you transitioned from being a student to being the doctor and having a candidate that's already made that transition really sets them up for taking advantage of a residency training program much more. If you're coming into a training program before you've made those steps, you may not get as much out of that residency training as you would if you were solidly confident in sort of your clinical management skills before you start trying to add in the whole zoological medicine component on top of developing that. And it's also about, do you know what you're getting into? Do you have an idea of what your career is going to look like on a day-to-day basis so you know what you're getting into? It's, it's a lot of time investment for you to go through. The last thing we want is for them to come out the other side and not want to be a zoo vet because they didn't know what they were getting into. The next category is research aptitude. One thing that we really like to see with candidates is some demonstration that they have interest and have started to develop skills in being able to research and publish. One of our goals for our program is to have you ready for credentialing to take board certification exam. And so we want to see people who are interested in completing those requirements. And we want to see some demonstration that they have the aptitude to complete those sort of research and publication requirements. So that can come in a variety of different ways. It can be individual research projects or assisting with research, or maybe you get a letter of recommendation about a project that you were involved with. There can also be actual publications listed on your CV. Those are all wonderful ways to demonstrate that you have that potential and the capacity for critical thinking and development of research, and then also dissemination and follow through to get a project from point A to point B. The next one is communication and interpersonal skills. So this is a little harder one to quantify, but it's incredibly important to 
pay attention to. Most of the time, this is going to be gleaned from letters of recommendation. So those letters need to be glowing. If there's any sign of a red flag, even a hint of a red flag that you aren't the kind of person who can get along with people or make working with you very difficult, that's not going to bode well for, for the residency program. We want someone who's trainable, who's able to communicate so that we can help them develop those skills. So really important to sort of choose your letter writers carefully and consider who you're asking and make sure they know you well and also that you've been very professional and respectful during your interactions with them. How important is it to have somebody who maybe you only did an externship with for four weeks but they're boarded versus someone who isn't boarded but you've worked with for a long time? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. And I think you really have to sort of evaluate your package individually and figure out where your weaknesses are and utilize your letters of recommendation to help bolster the areas that'll make you more rounded or that will help expound things or communicate them in a way that helps us understand where you are in each of these sort of categories. With that being said, it's great to have someone who's ACZM boarded, but if they don't really know you and they're going to give you a mediocre recommendation letter, you kind of have to weigh that with someone who's going to attest to your knowledge and your work ethic and your ability to communicate and actually have tangible experiences with you that they can sort of attest to. Because both of those things are helpful. The ACZM diplomate may know what it takes to sort of get through that process and they can sometimes evaluate whether they think you've got it or not. But if they don't know you, I'm not sure how much that's going to benefit you. But networking in general is a really important, it's not a category in your application, but it'll help you with all of the categories. So networking can definitely help you with opening opportunities, building relationships, building sort of ways to communicate with folks as you move through your career journey. So paying attention to that and intentionally culturing relationships with folks who are established in the field is appropriate to think about and build into your planning and how you're strategically setting up your four years in vet school and beyond. Amazing. What an incredible story about coconut and some really great advice. Dr. Deltima, thank you so much for being on Aquadocs today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really my pleasure. And a quick word from our sponsors. Please join the American Association of Fish Veterinarians this Thursday, December 2nd, at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a fish medicine meet and greet. This informal round session is meant to be an informal gathering of fish veterinarians to sit back, talk medicine, and socialize. More information can be found in your AAFV emails or the AAFV Facebook group page. Aquadox is also proud to continue our partnership with WAVMA, the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Jaltima for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra moment, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.